So good morning. Welcome to our fourth day together. The time is flying by. <laughs> I was remembering um, this morning one of the things a friend said during the three-month retreat this year, last year, said that uh, there's only two problems that we have in our meditation. One is the body and the other one's the mind. If <laughs> you notice that. <laughs> So I was noticing during the the sitting before breakfast that uh, a lot of you seem to be suffering with coughs and colds and it's that time of year and I you know I hope that uh, this can somehow be enfolded into embraced in your personal uh, practice and our collective practice that uh, you know I, I'm I'm sad that this is so but don't um, you know this doesn't stop us from uh, being able to just be with what's here. And just a, a reminder and encouragement of this wonderful piece of practice called the Vipassana sneeze or the Vipassana cough, where you sneeze or cough into the crook of your elbow can be a really good way to uh, slow down the spread of germs or prevent the spread of germs amongst the community. And then also that there are the hand sanitizers around and just to encourage you to use them. And also encouraging you all to make sure that you're warmly dressed enough when you're outside, although it's beautiful outside, it is bitterly cold. And I hope you're all aware of the, the Dana closet downstairs in the, where the laundry room is at the bottom of um, Shanty House, I think it is, um, where there's clothes that you can, you can borrow if you don't have enough warm things. And then there are various cold remedies, I think, in the... Uh, or prophylactics in the in the yogi needs closet as well but uh, also let us know if you know or let the managers know if you need extra support with any of that so that's all I'm going to say about the body this morning <laughs> uh, but the mind I thought it might be helpful uh, today to um, just share a few ideas about um, working with thinking in our practice, in case that might have been an issue for you. <laughs> so one of the things I've found really helpful is to make a distinction between thoughts and thinking. So we're all going to have thoughts arising. So thoughts are the impressions that arise at the different sense doors, the five external sense doors or from it within the mind. You know, so an impression arises and uh, with it comes a, a thought or there's a, a stimulus that arises, perception and so on. So uh, thoughts arise, this is normal and it's the mind, the, the, the mind's um, job is to go out looking for stuff, isn't it? And so this is going to be happening in the same way that the ear is going to be picking up sounds, the mind is going to be registering thoughts. But thinking is when we pick those things up and run with them. Okay. We pick them up and pursue them. Sometimes it feels more like they pick us up and run away with us, don't they? And they become self-perpetuating. So because I, I was talking last night about this process of contact with a sense organ feeling tone, perception. I just want to say how this relates to thoughts in the, in the traditional teachings. So it says that dependent on the eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. With contact as condition, there's feeling. This is Vedana, feeling tone. What one feels, one perceives. What one perceives that one thinks about. What one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. With what one has mentally proliferated as the source, perceptions and notions born of mental proliferation beset a person with respect to past, future and present. So th this is describing um, what in uh, the Pali language is called papancha, which is a, uh, a word I, I like. It has a kind of neat ring to it. And it's said that awakened beings, the beings who are awake to, uh, to life, to their mental processes, 
are ones who delight in non-papancha, nipapancha, non-papancha, non-proliferation. So Christina Feldman likes to talk about as practitioners how what part of our job is to sign a non-proliferation treaty with ourselves. <laughs> yeah. So how, how a few thoughts about how we might do this. And there's a very practical teaching that the Buddha gave in the early discourses uh, called the pacification of thinking, um, the Vitaka Santana Sutta. Santana is, uh, means calming down or pacifying, Vitaka are, are thoughts. And he gave five tips for ways that we might do this. Uh, I'm, not, I'm going to slightly give these in a different order from the way they appear in the teaching. Some of you, you may not have heard this before. Some of you, you may be very familiar with this discourse. But as I name them, you can then reflect on, well, to what extent am I actually applying this in my practice at the moment? Okay. So one of the things that we can do is simply to decide to give them no attention to turn the mind in another direction. So thoughts will be popping into the mind in the same way as sounds are being registered by the ear. And we can choose, as it were, to look away. So the image for this in the teaching is that it's like, just as if you didn't want to see a particular thing, you didn't want to see, I don't know, the birds flying around outside the window. You just look at the floor in the room or something. You just turn your attention in another direction. And we've, we've spoken about this, we've practiced with this in terms of inviting us to switch channels, you know, to redirect the attention back into the body, just not to, you know, to, to look away from the thoughts themselves. Another, another way uh, to kind of to conceive of that is that, uh, you know, we, we foreground the silence and the space around the thought in the mind, or we foreground, um, we foreground, as I said, the body sensations. Or sometimes, sometimes our thoughts actually have a lot of visual imagery, and we can actually sort of almost look away from the visual imagery of our thoughts. So that's one thing that may be effective. Um, another strategy is that if we become aware of a thought that is in any way uh, harmful, afflictive, or unbeneficial. So these would be thoughts that are um, rooted in or tinged with wanting, with greed, with aversion, or with confusion, is to actually just decide that you're going to think, replace it with another thought. So it's not even to stop thinking altogether, but just to, this is the, the image for this is like a carpenter who's using a smaller peg to knock a bigger peg out of a hole. Just take another thought to replace it. So you might be, the mind might, might be looping around something like, oh, they shouldn't have, that person shouldn't have done that or shouldn't have said that. And, you know, you could, you could replace it with a thought like, oh, I wish that person well, you know, but that, often that's not terribly accessible to us. But, you know, one could replace it with the thought as, you know, may, may the uh, squirrels outside have a good day or may the birds enjoy their bird food or just anything that is a uh, thought that is not tinged with that sense of um, aversion or uh, ill will or dissatisfaction, you know, or... You know, just the thought of, oh, I appreciate the sunshine today. Just anything that will help um, dis dislodge that thought. And if when we're doing that and we're having a, a, one of these kind of afflictive or harmful, um, emotionally turbulent thoughts, if, if simply finding another thought to replace it doesn't work, then another thing that's encouraged is to really reflect on the drawbacks of keeping thinking, you know, a really afflictive thought. If you think about it, what are we doing if we allow these kind of thoughts of hurt or resentment to loop around? It's just we're digging ourselves deeper into, into the groove of that particular thought and into the 
afflictive emotional state that comes with it. And we, we often, you know, these, these thoughts can be very, very convincing and we tend to get lost in the content of the thought and the, and the, the convincingness of how it feels rather than really uh, retain this perspective on, well, what are the effects of keeping generating this in my mind? So the Buddha said that this is, we, we need to attend to this in the same way as you would somebody, a young person who was very um, vain and uh, fond of their appearance would be completely horrified if they found a, a necklace of the carcass of a snake hanging around their neck and they'd want to, you know, they'd immediately want to put it down and get rid of it. You know, we should, we should be as careful and attentive as to what we're cultivating in the mind as that. And it's a bit of an extreme example, but just thinking in our own culture, you know, how much time do we spend obsessing over what we look like on the outside and doing, st- doing things to mitigate that versus how much care do we really expend on what's going on on the inside? So this is another skillful thing to do is to reflect on the, the drawbacks of that thought and then that will... Uh, support the motivation to actually maybe replace it or to do something else. So another one that I I very much like is the suggestion to uh, pay attention to calming down or to stilling the energy of the thought. So the image for this is like a person who suddenly realizes that they're running and they think, hang on a moment, I I don't need to be running. I could slow down here and just walk. And then as you're walking, you think, actually, I don't need to be walking. I could just stand. And standing, you think, oh, actually, I could sit down now. And when you're sitting, you realize, oh, I could even lie down. <laughs> and, and slowly, you know, we come to more and more of a state of rest. And how do we do that with a thought? Yeah. So I, was, I've, I think I've mentioned in a couple of the groups the way that I like to play with um, just recognizing that I don't have to finish every thought that I start thinking, that we can sometimes sort of stop mid-sentence in our mind, leaving a thought unfinished. We hear ourselves we, we, we ourself talking to ourselves, don't we, often? That's how thoughts manifest. And then I remember, well, actually, I, I've decided to practice silence. I, I can practice silence there in the dining room. I'm not talking to everyone around me. Maybe I could stop talking to myself, you know, <laughs> and just kind of put down that engagement with the inner speech and see what happens. Another thing I do is I notice how when I'm thinking, my eyes are often moving around different images or moving around. What happens if you just um, give some attention to steadying the inner gaze or stilling the eyes, seeing what happens there? And then the last resort that the the Buddha offered was that if none of your strategies work and this, this really disturbing thought is still assailing you, you have to just grab it by the horns and crush mind with mind, like a person <laughs> gritting their teeth. You grit, your te- you grit your teeth, you clench your tongue against the roof of your mouth, and uh, you just say, I'm not going there. And, and this is like a, a, a strong man wrestling a weaker one to the ground. And obviously, this is a kind of last resort strategy. You know, but sometimes the last resort strategies are what we, what we need to do. And it may be that what we need to do is go outside for a good stomp. And rather than do walking meditation, do stomping meditation. You know. So these are, you know, another, it's another opportunity in working with thoughts to practice this sense of attunement, to recognize what's happening now and to feel out, well, what might be needed right here? You know, how much, is, this, is this a case for a gentle approach? Is this a case for something firmer? So one of the images for mindfulness in the suttas is that of a cow herd. And at certain times, at the times of year when the crops are ripe and the, the cows are out in the fields, the, the, the cow herd has to be very vigilant that they don't uh, trample the crops. And so if they start to stray into that territory, he has to run after them and hit them with a stick. You know? 
And at other times of year when there's nothing to be damaged and the cows are just out in the pasture, then the, the cow herd can just sit under a tree quietly and keep an eye on the cows in the distance. And this depends what's needed, the degree of intervention that, that mindfulness, um, mindfulness offers or should offer. Um, you know, really it's about responding appropriately to what's happening now. And, but all of it really is about watching, watching the process of our, of our thinking. You know, this recognition of thinking as an, a happening, as an event in the mind, rather than reality. So this is one of the really critical things often that we learn when we engage with mindfulness practice, this recognition that thoughts are not facts, as they say in some of the, the courses. They may have varying levels of correspondence to what's actually out there, you know, but uh, ultimately we're, we're recognizing that the way that they're unfolding for us is as events in the mind. So we can observe them. Another, another useful tool for observation of thoughts is, can be the practice of noting, to just lightly put in, which is another thought, but this is a skillful use of thought, just lightly say, oh, thinking, thinking, when we catch thinking happening. Sometimes it's helpful even to, to differentiate the types of thinking that are happening. We might notice what are our kind of four or five top modes of thinking that are most common. Is it planning? Is it remembering? Worrying, judging, comparing, that's a good one. And and it's not to, again, not to make this a kind of judgmental assessment or evaluation of what we're doing, but just a recognition. So we don't want to, you know, go too heavy with our guns on the noting, but just this kind of light touch in the mind And an interesting thing to observe as we do that is the tone of voice in which we do it to ourselves, because that betrays quite a lot about the the underlying mood there. And actually, this is also a, a, a skillful thing to be doing, is to, when we find ourselves, particularly when we find ourselves really caught in a, in a proliferation of thinking, is to actually look for the mood that's underneath it, that's driving it. What's the emotion or the, the, the mood, the climate of the mind that's generating this, this spin of thinking? Is there maybe hurt there or anger there, a restlessness or just wanting, you know, the wanting, wanting concocting a pleasant fantasy? And, and to, to really come back to the... The, the mood, the felt sense of the mood underneath it, and to feel that through the body as a way of shifting the attention back from that channel four to, to channel one. And often we can attend to it, tend to it much more um, effectively by just uh, noticing and um, beginning to soften around, to acknowledge, to to soften around and investigate the sensations in the body. So a few thoughts there. And really to to make it an interesting investigation for yourself again, you know, when we we, um, find ourselves thinking. So how do thoughts manifest for you? You know, are they images? Are they sounds? Are they snippets of conversation? Where do they come from? Does the, is the image coming in from the top right or the bottom left? Things like that. I mean, it's probably different, uh, or it may not be different. We may all operate in the same way. I don't know. But these are, these are, so it's just a different way of relating to the thought than getting lost in the content. Yeah. So is it a word that pops into the mind first? Is it an image? Is it a snippet of a conversation? And then when I find myself in my mental chatter, sometimes it's interesting to ask, well, who am I talking to? Who's listening? (laughs) And those kinds of questions can also stop 
stop the mind. If I find my, I am talking or listening to a particular person, why? And obviously we don't want to then get into a whole, you know, that could be another spin on, uh, the, uh, another, another trigger for a lot of rumination. But, you know, and on what's the, What's the embodied experience? What's the felt experience of picking up or being picked up by a thought? So, you know, I said at the beginning, we can, it can be helpful to distinguish between thoughts arising and thinking, the activity of picking them up. How do we know we've picked it up? What happens in the body? You know, don't, don't we sort of feel ourselves becoming actors in some kind of inner drama if any of you have dogs, you know, the way that dogs are asleep and they're kind of going, <laughs> chasing the rabbits in their sleep. And it feels like that in the body when we're sitting on our meditation cushions sometimes. And that's a very interesting thing to bring, bring attention to. Okay. So I don't want to say that, you know, all thinking is bad. You know, there's, there's, Reflection is a, is a skillful use of the mind, but generally we do too much of it, especially on our meditation cushions. And if we do find ourselves thinking, are we aware that we're thinking or are we lost in it? And actually, you know, the Buddha said there, so there's another another teaching that just precedes the one about these ways of pacifying thoughts that says you know, a good thing to do with thoughts is to look at, is this thought helpful or unhelpful? Is it skillful or unskillful? And although it's said that with skillful or helpful thoughts, there's nothing wrong with them. They're not going to do you any harm. They're not going to do anyone else any harm. But if we keep thinking, it tires the mind and it tires the body and it tires the mind. And the more tired the body and the mind get, the less settled they get. So actually, you know, it's a really good thing to give yourself a break from that. And often, actually, the insights and the, the solutions to the th problems that we're holding, that we, we feel we need to be thinking about and fixing, they tend to arise much more productively in a quiet mind. So if you're, if you're in doubt, should I be reflecting about this or shall I just go back to channel one? Generally be encouraging us to keep reverting to channel one, especially in a meditation retreat and at this stage in a meditation retreat. Okay, so let's uh, sit together. If you want to stand and have a stretch first, move a little bit, please do. The beginning is usual with a, an acknowledgement of what's here right now. 
beginning our practice where we find ourselves. Remembering the intention of curiosity and of friendliness. Letting the body slowly begin to emerge into the foreground of awareness. Feeling our way into it. Seeing if it needs to, wants to make any little adjustments to find more balance, more of a sense of uprightness and spaciousness. Tuning into the breath or whatever you use as your resting place or anchor for attention just to get your bearings, orient yourself.
And letting that resting point for the attention be a point that includes the centering point from which to just be open to the experience that unfolds moment to moment. Letting sensations come and go, letting sounds come and go. And as thoughts arise, as they inevitably will, letting thoughts come and go. And then if we find ourselves thinking, maybe seeing if one of these strategies that I've named feels like an appropriate one to explore. Knowing that at any time if we're lost or confused, then connecting with the body, with the ground, with the next breath, something that's always available.
So take a moment to stretch. So everything um, Jaya has mentioned regarding to thought totally applied to the walking practice. Um, It's probably useful if you acquaint yourself with your toolbox. So uh, one of the key tasks uh, when uh, engaging in contemplative exercises is orientation. So much is not about what we add on top of what is already happening in our minds, but actually how we orient towards what is already happening and begin to uh, modulate that process in a skillful way. Sometimes I say this, my ideal scenario for uh, for me as a meditation teacher would be if um, practitioners basically wouldn't have any ideas about meditation they would preferably not have any ideas about themselves. And we could just start, you know, we just do a little simple exercise, immediately verifiable, immediately applicable. And, uh, you know, you'd all be enchanted by the quick results. (laughs) Because you don't harbor any ideas about yourself, you know, what you bring to this, what you're lacking, what needs to happen before you even can begin, you know, how much debts you have to pay back before you can even start meditating and all this kind of thing. Um, And it would be a much easier job. Unfortunately, this is not the case in real life, you know. Anecdotal evidence actually suggests that you guys only hear what you want to hear, irrespective of what we say. Or what you're afraid of, we're going to say, or of what you like to hear. Yeah. So there is an acknowledgement that some pre-selection takes place in uh, not just a, the self-perception, but also how in information is conv- conveyed or exercises are conveyed. So what it basically boils down to is you, the expert. Yeah. You need to be developing the savvy to find out what's happening in your mind, what's happening in your heart, and you need to learn a way in there. You need to learn a way into relationship. I keep harping on that meditation is an intelligent way of relating to one's own experience. And as in any relationship, not one single attitude is going to be the magical bullet. Yeah. So if your mind is wild and does a lot of thinking, you may... Uh, follow up on Jaya's stomping practice. Yeah? <laughs> if your mind is already uh, a little more quiet, you may actually address, name, talk to that mind and say, hey, what's going on? What are you feeling? Yeah. I often use three magical questions. One of them is, what's happening now? Yeah. That takes us out of past and future. What's happening now? Just kind of, sort of a didactic questioning what's happening now so the second question would be how does this feel so from being pulled back from past and future into the now that i have decried a few days ago Uh, so if we're back in that now let's get a quality yeah let's try to identify a quality that takes place so how does this feel right now And finally, a practice question that goes like this. Can I enter into a conscious and non-reactive relationship to whatever it is that's happening now, and whatever it is that I am feeling? Can I enter into a conscious, non-reactive relationship with this? So that gives us a perspective. There is something happening, very much in the spirit of Jaya's distinction between thought and thinking. Thought is totally normal. Don't expect your minds not to have thoughts. I would be very concerned, in fact, if your minds don't have thoughts. Do come and talk to us about this. (laughs) 
So uh, the question is your relationship to that phenomenon. You know, we can sit for hours without having a taste experience, without necessarily questioning our ident identity. Yeah. But when you for hours don't think, generally people start to get worried a little bit. Yeah. I get worried a little bit about you guys if you don't think for hours, because thought is totally normal. The little sequence Jaya read out to you this morning from the middle length sayings number 18, the Honeyball Sutta, basically says whatever is going to be in your sense experience, you're likely to have feeling tones about. In other words, you're going to evaluate in terms of pleasant and unpleasant. You're going to have perceptions about. Yeah, that's the raw material for thought. And then you're going to think about this. Yeah. You're going to have thoughts about this. Now the question is how much you're going to run with those thoughts. That's the difference between vitaka, thought production, and papancha, the uh, you know the proliferation, the mushrooming of your thought patterns, the explosive fanning out of associative and discursive processes. So that's where we have a choice. You don't really have a choice of having thoughts. You have a choice of how many you have and how whether you're going to cultivate them, whether you're going to let them mushroom or whether you just acknowledge, ah, there's the phenomenon of thought. Generally, it does want something for me. My thoughts, if yours are anything to resemble mine, my thoughts usually want something for me. They say things like, ah, I'm important. Uh, B believe me, <laughs> do something about me, don't just sit here, you know, I'm the last of my kind. <laughs> uh, I'm precious, you know, I will never come again unless you, you know, you do something now with me, I will, I will never ever come again. Yeah? Or, or maybe they say things, you know, I'll take you to peace. I make you happy. Yeah. So uh, usually there's an appeal coming from the, the, the discursive realm. And Jaya's suggestion to actually choose a relationship to this phenomenon of thought and being able to, uh, in psychotherapeutic terms, this would be called, say, withstanding client affect. In other words, yeah. In other words, if your thoughts kind of have a strong appeal to you and you're capable of actually holding your ground and say, mm, yes, I hear, I hear your point. You know, this is the side, this is the yes that says, I hear you, not the yes, I believe you or I follow you. Yeah. So when you go out on your walking path, do some of this orientation. For me, this is best done by establishing a quality of stopping. Just stopping and then l deep listening. Stopping and listening. What is moving? Yeah. If I hold, then the momentum that pushes that or that pulls or that wants to move forward, that momentum becomes more tangible. And I'm willing to hold that, you know, in a deep sense of the word. Rather than being held or led around or shoved around or frog marched by it, I'm willing to <laughs> hold it. Yeah, actually consciously willing to hold it, and then do deep listening into that space and say, "Ha! Huh, I don't need to believe every voice in there. I can hear every voice in there. It's better I know these voices, even if I don't want to believe them." And then you make some informed good choices, you know. Some things just need to be left to themselves. A lot of thought and use the tools that Jaya has outlined. The most elegant one to let things go past is wonderful. Yeah. The next one to make something useful out of something not so useful. Wonderful. The next one to consider that something is totally counter to your best values. That giving your energy to something that you know is going to make you angry or just fill you with longing or fill you with helplessness. Y we don't need to board every train that comes past. Yeah? Sometimes we just say, thank you very much, not boarding, and it goes off on its own to Tristania or whatever. Yeah? Um, 
The next one, to actually take action and begin to modulate. Say, if I can do it, I can also not do it. Maybe I can do it a little less hard or a little less fast or a little less loud. Sometimes it's interesting to play cheeky things with your thought. Exaggerate them, you know. Instead of being a little sulking and moping, you say, Ha! You know, wrong jam on the breakfast table this morning. Things cannot continue that way. We need to... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We need to leave this planet. Right? Yeah. <coughs> you know, just kind of exaggerate and take the seriousness out of it. Or so you begin to be able to modulate the thought content. The last one, you know, resort to this. All civilization, let's acknowledge this, hinges on impulse control. Yeah, that's what makes it safe enough to close one's eyes in the presence of others. <laughs> yeah that I trust if you have the impulse to flay your arms about that you know that you think of me when I sit beside you that's impulse control that's the basis of civilization so let's not pathologize that sometimes we need to uh, suppress an impulse not repress suppress suppress means I suppress it and then I know I have suppressed an impulse repressing an impulse will be a little different I do the same and then I try to pretend it has never happened okay that means I can't do the uh, archaeology and actually understand and dig up so suppression means I suppress an impulse and I plant a little flag say building site need to go back need to revisit in a cooler moment so use these tools when you go out on your meditation path And just to say that for the groups that I'm meeting with this morning, um, we'll be back in M200, which is the one, the big room at the end of the corridor, not 208, which may be what it says on the, on the notice board. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.